0: We are still alive. We are hungry for love. Message from a holy soul. Vanity it is to be only mindful of the present life and not fix one's eyes on the future. Thomas Akempis, Imitatio Christi. Production, purgatory and the Paranormal. For those who at death find themselves in a condition of being open to God, but still imperfectly, the journey towards full beatitude requires a purification, which the faith of the Church illustrates in the doctrine of purgatory. This is how Pope John Paul II explains why purgatory necessary for he continues we are called to be perfect like the heavenly father during our earthly life sound and flawless before god the father at the coming of our lord jesus with all his saints 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12 here john paul reaffirms the old wisdom concerning the existence of a state of purification after death purification means atonement for sins ...and their effects on the soul. It is not a painless, automatic process of growing the soul, of attaining full self-realization through the acquisition of ever more insight after death, as is the soothing theory of some spiritualists. It is not an accumulation of learning through a series of reincarnations until some point of perfect wisdom is reached, as in the fantasy of some Western New Age disciples. Such are childish attempts to suppress man's deep awareness that the basic dimension determining his destiny in the next world is not knowledge or experience, but moral purity, sin and the traces it leaves on the soul, versus holiness. In our culture today, of the three destinations that traditional Christian doctrine teaches may follow death and judgment, heaven, hell, and purgatory, Only belief in heaven or some such happy state has widely survived. The prevailing cheap optimism holds that if there is anything at all across the threshold of death, the life of practically everybody automatically ends up in a state of bliss. Dechristened and inwardly impoverished Western man may acknowledge having his imperfections and shortcomings, but doesn't look upon himself as sinful to him. Atonement for, or purification from, sin is a medieval idea. Already 150 years ago, Cardinal John Henry Newman saw the rise of this superficial, humanist mentality. We are cherishing a shallow religion, a hollow religion, which will not profit us in the day of trouble. The age, our age considerably more than his, loves an exclusively cheerful religion. It is determined to make religion bright and sunny and joyous, whatever the form of it which it adopts. And it will handle the Catholic doctrine in the same spirit. We take what is beautiful and attractive, shrink from what is stern and painful. Purgatory, to say nothing of hell. Penance, expiation, God's holy justice not fit in with today's cheerfully cheap religiosity however the truth remains that man has to be sound and flawless before god the father when after death he appears before him to render an account of his life only holy souls have direct access to the blissful abode where nothing unclean shall enter therefore every trace of attachment to evil must be eliminated every imperfection of the soul corrected. The place for this correction of the soul's imperfections is purgatory. This is not only a profound and holy mystery, but also an appalling mystery, whose frightening aspects cannot be glossed over. But the reality should not terrify us. John Paul II continues, One last important aspect which the church's tradition has always pointed out should be reproposed today, the dimension of Communio, the ecclesiastical solidarity which works through prayer, prayers of suffrage, and love. Here John Paul teaches us that penance and pain in purgatory are mitigated by the comfort of mercy. In the final analysis, purgatory is the mercy of Christ working through his mystical body, the Church. Close to the Vatican, alongside the Tiber in Rome, stands a beautiful Neo-Gothic church, the only one in that style in the whole city, which is devoted to the sacred heart of suffrage. Suffrage in the meaning of help to the souls in purgatory. In a room in the sacristy are exhibited a small number of strange, fascinating relics, objects bearing visible, physical traces left by souls in purgatory. The collection is known as the Piccolo Museo del Purgatorio, or the Little Museum of Purgatory. The Museo and the Church of the Sacred Heart of Suffrage represent two sides of Purgatory. The collection offers impressive bits of tangible evidence for the harrowing existence of the souls there, while the Church itself displays the Christian comfort of the mercy and charity for the suffering souls, as practiced since time immemorial by the Catholic Church great central triptych in the Church, representing the Sacred Heart, the poor or holy souls, and various saints, has even been called a visual compendium of Catholic doctrine on purgatory by Pope Benedict XV. The Church is a monument in honor of the mercy of the divine human heart of Christ for the souls in purgatory, and at the same time, an invitation to the faithful to practice charity for them in union with his merciful heart. For the devotion to the suffering souls is inextricably linked to the devotion of the Sacred Heart. That has been made especially clear by St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, the Apostle of the Devotion to the Sacred Heart. As Father John Crozet wrote, The revelations she received about the sufferings of these souls, about our Divine Lord's tender love for them and His eager desire for their deliverance, of the great efficacy of the devotion to the Sacred Heart for their early release, and the fact that she combined these two devotions so intimately in her own person, indicate that there is such a close connection between the two devotions that the devotion to the souls in purgatory may be said to form a part of the devotion to the Sacred Heart. The paranormal evidence displayed in the little museum of the Church and some additional evidence, notably the burned-in hand, in the Corporal of Czestochowa in Poland, are instrumental in developing devotion to the suffering souls. It brings us nearer to the reality of purgatory by allowing us a closer look into this awful abyss of purification. These evidences also appeal to the modern mind, with its preference for concrete proof and witness testimony. They bear the signature of souls who have appeared from purgatory to ask for mercy, revealing something about themselves and their condition of suffering and doing penance. The paranormal specimens in the Museo del Purgatorio and an item like the Hand of Chestahova, are the best documented paranormal evidence to be found in relation to contacts with the dead. The paranormal specimens in the Museo del Purgatorio and an item like the Hand of Chestahova, are the best documented paranormal evidence to be found in relation to contacts with the dead. The authenticity of the apparition stories linked to each of the specimens in the museum has been verified by critical priests, theologians, and trustworthy witnesses. And despite their relative rarity, they are not the only ones in existence. Uncritical credulity is of course not the right mindset to approach them, but it is no less narrow-minded to exclude beforehand the occurrence of events other than those of everyday experience, concluding that they must be the products of superstition or even fraud. G.K. Chesterton rightly noted in The Incredulity of Father Brown, it is natural to believe in the supernatural. It never feels natural to accept only natural things. Our present tour of purgatory, then, will be mainly a tour of human experiences, of trustworthy apparitions of souls from the afterlife. Although we shall occasionally refer to theology, theology is not our prime focus here. But then, it is clear that many of these apparitions from the dead are nonetheless full of theological wisdom. For all reliable reports of apparitions from the dead are interesting. But the fact is that the overwhelming majority of the more elaborate, instructive, and well-documented apparitions come from the Catholic world. There seems to be a message in that fact. The program of this book is as follows. After a few introductory considerations on the notion of purgatory in history and on apparitions of the dead in general, we'll enter the Museo del Purgatorio in Rome to examine the individual items of its collection, presented to the reader in the print edition of this book by the artful work of photographer Janusz Razakhan that will lead us to the inspection of more such pieces of evidence, beginning with the relic of Chestahova, and then some singularly informative cases of apparitions of souls from purgatory in the 20th century. As we try to penetrate a little into this too-often-forgotten part of the next world, we may become more keenly aware that the souls in purgatory are in need of our help and are too often forsaken. Confronted with some of the pieces of evidence from the Museo and with the stories behind them, many people understandably react with a shiver. Manifestations from beyond the tomb are indeed frightening. In particular, visible apparitions, ghosts, or phantoms. And these manifestations are not only frightening when they are of demonic origin. Even apparitions from heaven may incite fear. Moreover, the signals from purgatory point to grievous suffering. But when looking at the pictures of burned-in hands or when meditating on the stories of apparitions from purgatory, we must keep in mind that these souls seldom unfold their whole inner condition, if such a thing were possible at all. They show only the face of their profound misery, presumably because the main reasons for appearing are to ask for mercy and to awaken the awareness of the seriousness of sin in the living, urging them to strive after holiness. But it is more difficult to understand For the next world really transcends our earthly perceptions and experiences, that purgatory has simultaneously a totally different dimension. The poor souls, or holy souls, seem to experience unimaginable consolations and joys as well. Tangible manifestations and communications from purgatory are, so to speak, coded in the language of images and words we can understand but that is only an approximation of the language of the hereafter. We know that grief and joy can coexist in the soul on earth, but how the extremes of suffering and rejoicing can go together in purgatory is beyond normal human experience. Yet, on balance, the place or state of purification, of God's fathomless justice, is at the same time a place or state of God's mercy, of hope, inner peace, St. Francis of Sales, a doctor of the Church who can be called an authority on this issue, was amazingly outspoken. The thought of purgatory is productive rather of consolation than of terror, he wrote. Great as the torments of purgatory are, the interior consolations granted there are nevertheless so ineffable that no earthly bliss and enjoyment one the near-death experience and beyond near-death experiences are well established a percentage five ten or even twenty percent depending on the group under study of people who have come back from the threshold of death from a state characterized by a standstill of heartbeat and respiration deep coma falling away of important reflexes and disturbed or diminished brain functioning, report impressive experiences as if they had been in a waking state. Many saw their body and the things that happened around it as if from above and could hear what was said around it. Then they went through a dark tunnel into a bright light, experienced an overview of their whole life, and or met with an entity of light or with deceased relatives. This is all very suggestive of their having set a few initial steps into the afterlife, of having had a glimpse of what comes after death. In many instances, the people who returned from the near-death situation appear to have been deeply influenced for the better. They come back to life less self-centered, more intent on loving other people, and more positive toward religion. One of the best elaborated and informative cases that can be found in the literature is the autobiography of the German-Austrian industrial manager Helmut Laun, who had such an experience during an operation after an automobile accident in 1929. When the Archbishop of Vienna, Cardinal Franz Koenig, asked him to write an account of the experience and his subsequent investigations of it, by which his life had been completely changed, his first reaction hard to convey things that concern one's own soul to a greater public, on the other, because it is difficult to make comprehensible the kind of experiences such as fell to my share, end quote. This is a typical reaction. People with supernatural experiences want to protect their inner privacy. Many years later, he nevertheless decided to make his story public, hoping his testimony might help others who seek God with a sincere heart, for his near-death experience had opened up for himself the way to God and the church. The following fragments of his account are of special interest. While under an anesthetic during the emergency operation, Helmut Loun's life became endangered. The anesthetist told him he was concerned that Lowne would not come back from the procedure. As for Loun himself, quote, time and space ceased to exist contact with the environment was broken off. Every feeling extinguished. But now I experienced something extraordinary. At first, faintly, yet increasingly more clearly, it dawned upon me that I was there again. I woke up, as it were, in an immaterial space, separated from the world, and captured myself as I. My self-awareness was absolutely identical with my being a person in the world. Yet of a different nature. It is difficult to find the fitting words for that. I would rather say, I perceived again like previously in the world, but receptive, not of myself, by my own will, and yet actively, intensively, and with awe, end quote. Note that his personal identity, his ego, his soul, was just the same, fully intact. Continued. In this immaterial space, space not in the earthly sense, I discerned in the far distance, unclear in the beginning, a spiritual center, like a light of tremendous intensity, a center unto which everything in that space was ordered. My spiritual eye, the center of my person, directed itself, as fascinated, to that still faraway center, and merely seeing it aroused in me a deep yearning to come nearer to it as to the ultimate, most blissful goal. It looked as if everything I had ever longed and wished for in my life was put together there as in a focus and alive in a fullness that exceeded all imagination and oriented to that center. And as if each creature couldn't but strive after the most intimate bond with just that ravishing spiritual center. Its perception was immediately accompanied with a profound feeling of happiness. For I noticed that I moved towards that most intensely desired center, that I got nearer to it, not in a straight line, but in circles that became narrower at each revolution. That way I came nearer and nearer to the center. At each revolution, it became more distinct to me, more ravishing, and at the same time, The yearning to attain this desired goal deepened, became ever more intense. It was as if I increasingly comprehended with full clarity that no earthly good had ever sent me that much into raptures and could have sent me into raptures as this incomprehensible light. Today, after so many years, I would say that from this mysterious center emanated an infinite fullness of life, a mysterious everything in all. In that yearning to wholly arrive at this center, there was no trace of annihilation, no thought of being extinguished in this tremendous sun, out of which boundless power seemed to irradiate. Very clearly joined with these raptures at coming nearer was the certainty that my own eye would find its fulfillment there. End quote. Lowne wrote this many years after the fact, from memory. The fascinating thing is that his memory, apparently an immaterial faculty, retains this experience, this perception of non-material realities at all. He translates his retained perception of immaterial realities back into earthly words and material images. Distance, space, center, sun. The words and images he uses do not transmit these realities directly. They can only approximate them. However, irrespective of these limitations, it is clear that the basic dimensions of the psyche turn out to be the same in the hereafter as in this life. The I, consciousness, thinking, feeling, longing for happiness and fulfillment. In other words, by death, life is changed, not taken away. Vita non tolitur. Laun also gets a glimpse of a departed soul who was detained on the spot where it found itself and could not come nearer to the center. Quote, On my way to the center, I saw, as I clearly remember, a man, not in his body, and yet I saw him very real. This man, or rather this spiritual being, Had its gaze fixed on that center with an unquenchable craving, with a longing that at the same time caused deep pains because something, whatever it might be, impeded him to come nearer to the rapturous goal, if only a hair's breadth. He was pinpointed, as it were, and couldn't move any more, although he pined for it, as I could read from his expression, with all passion with his whole soul. When I look back today, only this face stiffened in pain is clearly in my memory. End quote. He thinks the unhappy figure was Voltaire. The suggestion is that he was in hell, as there was no hope for him ever to come nearer to the center. Anyhow, Lowne saw the suffering of that happiness-thirsty soul who can see the water but cannot get at it. In Lowndes' vision, there was no fire, no flames. But that need not mean that the soul in hell, or in purgatory for that matter, is not ablaze with a real and or mystical fire. In a certain sense, extreme longing and a feeling of burning converge. The extreme yearning of souls in hell or purgatory may feel more like a scorching fire than an earthly fire to our body. As we shall see this is the view of Saint Catherine of Genoa the theologian of purgatory quote with each further revolution with increasing approximation the longing grew more vehement to fully get at the rapturous center as the highest desirable good all beings of the space beyond recognize that as clearly like all of us perceive the common world around us with the same senses Since the movement went spiral-wise, the speed of approaching increased constantly. But at some point of the track, I was suddenly held back. The movement came to a halt. Yes, went backwards, so that I moved outward again and withdrew from the yearned-for center. This backward movement was as smarting to me as approaching had sent me in raptures. And in effect, the pain which increased with the growing distance consisted herein, that I had to take leave of the good I had recognized as the profoundest possible happiness. End quote. This was why he kept repeating over and over again the word terrible after coming out of the anesthesia. Thereafter, his emotional life was marked by this homesickness for the light, this sun he was to identify as God. It is the bitter pain of homesickness people feel after receiving the grace of a very intimate contact with God. But in a more subtle way, not consciously recognized for what it is, it works in each human soul. This notion of homesickness is no doubt also a good designation for the longing for God of the soul in purgatory. In these near-death accounts, what would have been the next steps? if the experience had not been broken off, and the person had not stopped on the threshold of death. Interestingly, there are several accounts of communication by souls from purgatory that correspond to profound near-death experiences, like the one described by Helmut Lowne, and give an impression of what happens beyond them. We shall cite two such trustworthy communications. The first comes from a deceased priest who appeared numerous times to the German princess, Eugenia von der Leyen, a woman who was visited in great numbers by the poor souls begging for her aid, for holy masses, prayers, mortifications, and other suffrages of the Catholic Church. It is evident that some persons, motivated by pity and mercy, are called to a hard life of self-denial in the service of the suffering souls. Eugenia was one of them, an emotionally stable, amiable, cheerful and realistic woman, she shared with other privileged helpers of the poor souls the characteristic that she preferred to keep silent about her contacts with these souls. If she hadn't been ordered by her spiritual director to keep a diary on her experiences, they would have fallen into oblivion. We were listening to the audio book, Hungry Souls, Hungry Souls Supernatural Visits, Messages, and Warnings from Purgatory, Gerald J. M. Vanden Ardwick. Narrated by Kevin Gallagher. Thank you for listening. Oh, the audio book preview that we listened to is from the Play Store Books.